if you can clear the cobwebs out of your brain and think back to last February, you'll remember that our children worshiping with us all together, that's kind of how, I don't want to say how we've always done it, but that's how we've done it for a long time. So now we're getting back to that. But there is this power of all being together as well, and nothing can take that away from us. Our passage this morning that we're going to be looking at together is from Genesis 3. And as Jasper uh, hinted at, this is a, a weighty passage. And I want to start with a question to help us getting, get thinking in the right way, get our brains working towards the truth of what God's word says by asking a questions of ourselves. And that is this, what do you want so badly that you're willing to ignore what God says to try and get it? What do you want so badly? What do you desire so much that you're willing to read what God says or hear what God says and ignore it to try to get what you desire? Now, I get it. You come in and we just sang some awesome music and then the preacher comes up to you and is like, hey, I want you to think about your heart and where your heart is. And that's like, hey, slow down, dude. So let's look at what God's word says. I'm thinking of a woman that we see in God's word. A woman. Jesus meets this woman, and she's ashamed, and she's hiding. And there's a happy ending, but before that comes, Jesus peels some things back. He says, hey, I know where you've been in regards to your relationships. So you've not just had one husband or two or three or four. You've had five husbands. And then you're, you're with a man right now who you're not married to. And we know, adults, what that means to be with someone. So we don't know all the details of those five prior relationships, but we know the way that she's acting and the way that Jesus is talking to her, she's not just a victim. So before she met Jesus, what did that woman at the well want so badly that even after the second, the third, the fourth, and then the fifth time, and she knew she was wrong, she still kept going back to it, despite the shame that she was living in. Or then there's a man, a man, and he comes and talks to Jesus, really religious guy, didn't steal stuff, honorable, kept his word, had a really well-paying job, and he says, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? From the passage, we can kind of assume that he thinks he knows, but he's coming to ask Jesus and he says, good teacher, how how do I get these things? And Jesus says to him, okay, you've got all this stuff, give it all away to the poor and then follow me instead and I will give you a treasure you would not even believe. Give it up all for me. So Jesus says something and the man hears it and he's heartbroken. The word there in, in the text is he's anguished by what Jesus says and he turns and walks away. What, did, what is the, the rich young ruler, as we read scripture, what is, what is he thinking? What does he want so badly that even though he himself said that what Jesus said was good, good teacher, he weighed then Jesus' words and still turned and walked away. And then there's another man, strong in his convictions, right? A passionate man, bold. And he's Jesus' top guy. Jesus' top guy. And Jesus says some hard things and he turns to Jesus and he says, though all will fall away because of you, everyone else is going to fall away. I'm never going to fall away, Jesus. And then Jesus says, you're going to fall away. 
then Peter says back, no, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. And then about a day later, he denies Jesus one time, two times, and three times. What, what did Peter want so badly? What was the desire of his heart? What was he going after that even though Jesus said this, and then Jesus said that he was going to do it, he still ended up doing it. He still ignored the word of God. And then thinking about Genesis 3. So there's a man and a woman in, in the garden, right? And this is where it gets interesting. They're not wearing any clothes. They're naked. So that's interesting, If you look at the end of Genesis 2, it says they're naked and there's something with it. They're not ashamed of it. So about their nakedness, they don't feel the way that you're feeling right now when someone's standing in front of you and saying naked, right? They don't feel weird about it. God created them in a specific way to show something. So they were literally naked. When the Bible says that, they they were literally naked. It's not just some idea or metaphor, If you were walking through a field and saw this tarp on a thing and you pulled the tarp off the field and there was this silver car there and it has this weird thing on it that says flux capacitor on it and then you somehow got plutonium to power it by building a fake bomb made out of pinball machine parts and sold it to Libyan terrorists to get money to buy plutonium to power what you realized is a time machine. And you took that time machine back and you looked at that point of creation and you saw Adam and Eve. The first thing you would notice is they're not wearing any clothes. They're naked. And they're not ashamed of it. It's not just a metaphor. That really happened. They were really without it. But why were they naked? Why God, this author who's writing a story and has all this creative power, why does he choose to do that? Well, it tells us two things. First of all, it tells us that God created Adam and Eve to have nothing in between them and himself. So there's nothing in between them. They were uncovered in the presence of God and they were not ashamed of it. It also tells us that God created them to have nothing between them in their own relationship. They were uncovered in the presence of each other and they didn't think anything of it. They were not ashamed. So think about it this way. Vertically, they had nothing to hide between them and God and and horizontally, they had nothing to hide. They were innocent. And it was all very good. And God commanded these things of the man and the woman. He said, grow, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Don't stop growing. And then rule, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. I'm commanding you to do this. Do things with the earth. You have rule over it. Eat, enjoy what I've given you. Bless others, accept. Don't eat from one tree, the knowledge the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now remember, creation is God creating, and in that creating, God is authoring a story. So God really made this tree. If you had enough plutonium to go back in the time machine and look, there was a tree there too, literally a tree. It's not a metaphor or an idea, but at the same time, it it is. God authored this, created this, so that we would understand something about him and his creation. So when you think about Eve in the garden, looking at the tree, what did, what did the tree mean to the woman? What did it mean to her when she saw it? What did Eve 
want so badly that she was willing to ignore what God said to get that thing. So if you got your Bible open, look back um, verses four and five, and then six. Look at the angle the serpent takes to tempt the woman. Hey, God knows your eyes will be opened. Eve, you're, you're currently missing something here. You, you're missing out on something. You'll be like God. So you can, you can be greater than you are right now. And you'll, you'll do that by knowing good and evil. Basically, Eve, you, if you take this, you get to decide what's right and wrong. That's not just God's responsibility anymore. If you take this, you, you get to make that decision. And look at how Eve was tempted then in verse six, if you look back. She sees the, the fruit on it, and she's like, this is beautiful and tasty fruit. Jasper mentioned this last week. That doesn't mean the fruit was like more beautiful and tasty than the other trees. If you go back to Genesis 2, you'll realize that every tree that God put in the garden was beautiful and tasty. Every tree. So she sees it, and she's like, all these trees are good and beautiful and tasty. This one is the same way. What's wrong with this tree? It's not any different than those other trees. And it will make me wise. If I take this, then I I have the power myself. I, I get to choose what's right and wrong. That's not just up to God anymore. Think about that question. What do you want so badly? You're willing to ignore what God says. We could make a long list of all our wrong desires. It'd be a shameful list, right? All these things that we want so badly. But each one rests on a single choice. And it's the same one the man and the woman faced in the garden. Will I trust what God says? That it's good. Will I try to decide for myself what's good? We've been asking now for I don't know how long it's been, for as long as we've been preaching from Genesis this year and last, how did we get here? It's about creation. And then as we think now, how did we get here? How did the woman at the well get to that sixth relationship and immorality? How did she get there? How did the rich young ruler get to the point where he's choosing money over God right in front of him? How did Peter get to denying Christ, even after making all these bold promises that he would never do that? When you think about it, when when God kind of unentangles the mess of our lives, the starting point to that mess is always the question on the screen. Every day, every day, that's the choice that you and I are making over and over in our heads, hundreds maybe thousands of times a day, whether we're conscious of our decisions or not. Trials and temptations, and we think, did God say that? Why can't I decide for myself? Really, do do I need God, or can I I decide to do this? And the, the deception that you remember Todd preaching about two weeks ago, and then the doubt that Jasper preached about last week, all kind of swirl together and desires are formed out of that and that drives our disobedience. And we always find ourselves as a result of disobedience guilty and that guilt brings shame and fear. Look at what happens to the man and the woman. Verse seven, 
The man and the woman know guilt and shame. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Their eyes were opened. When the Bible uses this phrase, usually it's talking about a perception gained. You understand something that you did not understand before. We know the man and the woman were naked. So they didn't become naked when they fell. They were just aware of it all of a sudden. When their eyes were opened, they became aware of their nakedness. Nakedness became an issue to them. And this is to represent and to show us that they were ashamed of what they'd done. They went for their desire. They chose to to do it themselves. And then the first thing they realized when they had this new knowledge is that they'd chosen wrong. Their eyes were open that what they wanted, their desires themselves were wrong. They were guilty and guilt always brings shame. I want you to think, especially parents, but everyone should be able to understand this. I want you to think about a child that's done something wrong. What does it look like? Picture it in your head. They won't look at you in the eyes, right? And you can see their face burns. It's like red with shame. Their eyes are blinking with tears. Their head's down. Really, their, their body's shrinking away from you. You have that picture in your head? And then something weird happens, and maybe this is just in the Johnson house. But the child's there ashamed, and then their, their brother or sister walks in. And all of a sudden, it's like Bilbo Baggins in Fellowship of the Rings when he sees the ring, and he's like, Rah! Like something happens to the child. The child's so ashamed. And then all of a sudden their brother or sister comes in and they're like, oh, I can't deal with this. And what do they say? Parents, you know this. They say, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Why is that response so strong? And it's not just children. The response is strong because the pain of shame is deep in our hearts. It's deeper than I know I did something naughty. It's humiliation. It's an awareness of guilt that hurts. Not just an idea, but like physically hurts. And the reason that it hurts so much is because it raises doubts in us about our value, our dignity, and our worth. And not only do I feel this awful unworthiness in me, but somehow, some way, I don't know, everyone can see it. It's not hidden. And look at what Adam and Eve do with this emotion and this feeling. They try to cover it up. That's the end of verse 7, right? And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I don't know why the ESV chooses loincloths as the way to translate that. Just erase that from your memory. Just picture them covered with leaves, not like George of the Jungle or Tarzan. That just wrecks the image in your head. What are they trying to do? They're trying to cover themselves up. So think of the whole story now. Not just right now in Genesis 3. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. God made Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, to be together. He put nothing between them. But once they start to disobey, once they have that desire and choose against what God has said, it starts to snowball now. And now they're the ones that are trying to put something between themselves. What God put together, they're trying to put some sort of barrier between it. Adam says this in Genesis 2. You can read it for yourself. I don't remember the verse, but you'll find it if you look. Finally, 
Adam says, finally, you've given me this woman and this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then God says after that, hold fast to each other. You'll be one flesh together. And what does their guilt and shame do in their relationship? Now they're deliberately wanting something that's against what God had said. They want something between themselves. They want something to cover themselves. We'll look at it uh, in two weeks, I think, in verse 16 in regards to their relationship. But even before verse 16, their relationship is trashed. It's already broken because of what they chose to do. The whole nakedness thing, it's not a, a promotional message from a man on stage for husbands and wives to take their clothes off more. But I want to ask husbands and wives in our church, what are you covering up in your relationship? And why are you doing it? Why are you hiding things from your spouse? And when you do that, does it actually work in your relationship? Because it didn't work for the man and the woman in the garden. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Imagine that, to walk with God. But what happens? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They're still afraid. The man and the woman are still afraid. What they, what they tried to do didn't work. So they try to hide from God. The covering that they tried to put on themselves didn't work. And that, that's how it is in our lives. Covering up our sin on our own never works. It never takes that sin away. So we try all kinds of fig leaves, right, to cover that sin up, and it never, ever, ever works. The shame is still underneath the fig leaves. And this is far deeper than our marriages or the relationships that we have with other people. If you look at verse 10 in chapter 3, Adam explains it. What does he say? Look at it in verse 10. I heard you, I heard, I heard you, God, in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Once they decided that they were the ones who had determined right and wrong, their view of God changed when they did that. It wasn't just a perception of something wrong with themselves. Their view of God changed along with their sin. Their relationship with each other was broken and their relationship with God was broken. The result of that is they did not enjoy God's presence anymore. Now God's presence just made Adam afraid. It's time for a a mini sermon within the sermon about fear. Because if you look across all of scripture, so cover to cover, look through scripture, there's this tension with the idea of fear. So let's say Proverbs 1, I think they're up on the screen there, yeah. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, of wisdom in other Proverbs, it says. So there's this, this idea of fear being good. And then God often says, both to his people in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, Fear not. Don't be afraid. But then we read like 1 John 4, which is a a key passage to go to in regards to fear. We see there's no fear in love. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what do we do with this tension? Well, what people usually want to do with tension is, 
I don't want to deal with tension at all. So I'm just going to pick one direction to go or the other direction to go, right? Then I don't have to deal or reconcile with the fact that it seems like the Bible is saying fear is good and bad at the same time. What do I do with this? I'm just going to pick one direction. So some people are like, I'm picking the good direction and they only want to say fear is good, right? Fear is logical and truthful in response to who God is. He's a holy God, so we should be afraid of him. And it's not just good, it's necessary. This is a command of God, so it's true. It's true. And it is true. That's what the Bible says. So some people go that direction. Other people are like, the fear is totally bad direction. And that's true too. When you consider what Jesus came to do, part of that was taking fear away. So they would say, if you have fear, that, that's basically anti-gospel. That's an affront to the truth of God's word. That's against God's, God's will to be afraid because of what Jesus has done. And you know what? That's true as well. But the right side to take is that there's not a side. Both of those things are true. And the best example is Jesus. We can see what the prophet Isaiah said up on the screen in regards to the Lord. This is talking about Jesus before Jesus came. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But the prophet doesn't stop there. It says, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus came to destroy fear. There's this awesome picture in uh, Revelation 1. He's talking to John and he says, fear not. Don't be afraid, John. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death in Hades. That's what Jesus says to John. She's like, you have no reason to be afraid. I'm in control of everything. Death, I I dealt with that. Don't be afraid, John. Get up. Just like Jasper talked about after he fell down. Get up, John. Jesus came to destroy fear. But this fearless one loves the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That word delight is very interesting. It has to do with smelling something. So think about walking into a bakery, right? Jasper and I were talking about this earlier. You walk in a bakery and you're like, yeah. Or do you smell bacon or you smell grilled meat? Sorry if you're vegan or whatever. That's not the way that I do it. Like you smell these things or you're going for a hike in the winter. And I know not everyone loves snow, but you're crunching through the snow and then you smell a wood stove when you're walking through the woods and it's cold and it's like, that is so good. And when you think about thinking about, oh, that smells good. That is how Jesus feels about the fear of the Lord. It motivates him and energizes him. Think about that. And then think about Adam and his fear of God hiding behind trees, afraid of God because he's guilty. And you know what? We think Adam and Eve are a bunch of dummies, right? Oh, you dummies, you're hiding. Do you really think you can hide from God? But they believed what God said. What did God say? On the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. So I want you to put yourself in Adam's shoes when you know that you've done something wrong and then you hear God coming. Adam was likely thinking, God knows we disobeyed. He, he knows everything. I don't know how he does that, but he knows everything. 
And he said, if we disobey, we're, sh- we're surely going to die. And he's coming to kill me. He's coming to destroy me. But look what God does. God does not let them hide. It's in verse 9 starting. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he, the man said, I heard you as the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Let's look at verses 9 to 11. Let's, let's really look at them. What, what's God doing here? You see, God is a, God's a judge. God desires justice. He's carrying out justice. So this is, in some respects, this is a, an arraignment. God is bringing a charge in front of the man, the formal reading of a charge, an indictment against the man. You have done this, have you not? And then with that, the expectation of a plea. That's what happens at arraignment, right? Well, are you not guilty or are you guilty? And then later on, in later verses in chapter three, there's, there's sentencing, there's punishment that comes with this and death. God is also, though, a very unique judge because he doesn't just make these pronouncements right away. Look at it. Look at it yourself. What does God do? He asks some questions to Adam, which is interesting because it's not like God doesn't know the answers to the questions. Where are you? Was God really looking for Adam in regards to not knowing where he is? No, he's God. He knows exactly where Adam is. So what, what's the point of God asking these questions? He knows that Adam is guilty. He knows that Eve is guilty. Why is he asking these questions? Let's, let's look at the questions. First, he asks this, basically, where, where are you? Adam, where are you? Why would God ask someone this question? Where are you? Think about your situation. Is your situation good or bad? Adam, I created you in my image. I created you to subdue the earth and rule over it. You're created in my likeness, in my image. And now you're wearing a dress of leaves hiding behind a tree. Like, are you in a good spot, Adam? Are you really in a good spot based on your own choice? Where are, where are you, Adam? What's going on? And then who told you to feel this way? God says, hey, who told you that you were naked? Now, if, if we gloss over this, we're going to miss something in regards to the truth of scripture, who told Adam that he was naked? Who told him? Think about it really right now. Answer that question in your head. Adam, Adam just knows he's naked all of a sudden. God didn't say, you're naked. It doesn't say that the serpent said that or that Eve did. Adam just knows it. He's just ashamed. He knows that he's naked. When I think about the word shame, and the pain that's associated with it, there's this tendency in cultures then to try to say like, this hurts so bad that we've got to do something in regards to shame. And some cultures try to attack it by saying, you know what? We're just going to say that you should never be ashamed and never talk about it. Just no shame, no shame, no shame. And I would ask you, does that work? Does that really take shame away? Look at all of these cultures of the course of human history that man has built. 
to try to take away shame, to try to say, this is, we're going to be godless. If there's no authority there, then you should never feel ashamed on anything. And yet those people still commit suicide and those people still suffer and feel pain. There's still shame in all these cultures. It's almost like it's something that's built in to people. You know something that's awesome about your worth? You were made in the likeness of God to bear his image. That's the ultimate statement of human dignity and worth. And then the question is, and it's a hard question, and this one is going to hurt. There's no other way for me to ask it. Knowing that you are created in the image of God, knowing that you were created to be like God and represent him, do you think that you can live your life in a way contrary to that and not somehow feel like you're being torn apart on the inside? Who told Adam to feel this way? Who told Adam that he was naked? Do you really think you can do something contrary to how you were designed and not feel the pain from that? And then God basically says, how did you get here? Adam, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Did did you do it, Adam? The woman desired, and then you went along with it in some regard, to choose for yourselves what was good rather than to trust what I said, Adam. But you're not God. I didn't make you that way. You're not equipped to do that. You're always going to choose the wrong thing. Adam, the situation that you're in right now is what happens when you try to decide for yourself what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. And as we think about God being a judge and justice, and then these questions, we realize questions like this hurt. They attack how we feel about ourselves, and they injure our pride But they're also not questions of a God who's looking to toss someone aside and be completely done with them and forget about them. God asks Adam these questions because he's a merciful God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is patient with Adam in this situation. And he asks these questions because he wants Adam to think about what he's done and to know something. The questions are lessons for Adam to teach him about repentance, to recognize that his way does not work and God's way does. God's overarching purpose is not to harm Adam and Eve, it's to help them. But but how do they respond to God's mercy? Look at verses 12 and 13. The man said, so he's answering God's questions. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then God goes to the woman. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There's this pattern within human history, and it is called, at least in my mind, yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, God, I disobeyed. I ate. But you, God, gave me a bad helper. You gave me a faulty helper. I can't give her back to you. You gave me a bad helper, and she made me do it. 
And then Eve is confronted and she's like, yes, I disobeyed, I ate. But you're the one God who put the snake here. He deceived me. Think about the woman at the well. Yeah, what, what could have she said? Could she have said? Yeah, God. Yeah, Jesus, my, my past relationships are a train wreck. And this time it's just outright sinful altogether, like the whole thing. But you, God, haven't provided for me. You haven't done that. Yeah, but, yeah, God, I don't give to poor people. You know why? Because those people are lazy and suck off the system. Yeah, I say things to dishonor the pastors in my church, which is against scripture, but you put them in place, God. I didn't vote for them. Yeah, I don't love my spouse. I don't respect my spouse. I don't honor my spouse. But you know what? They're not lovable, they're not respectable, and they're not honorable. Yeah, my tongue is an undignified, out-of-control forest fire on social media, God. But all these people are such sheep. Yeah, I've got a bitter heart, God. But I wouldn't be bitter if everybody else would change. Look at how men and women respond to sin. Guilt, shame, fear, blame. That's man's way. The Proverbs say this. Jasper quoted this last week. Did he catch it in his sermon? There's a way that seems right to a man. But its end, the result of that, its end is the way to death. We think we can know better than God. We, we can make this choice and somehow make a better choice than God for our lives. We disobey, and that makes us only realize that we were even wrong to want that, to have that desire. And then we try to cover it up, but it never works. We can't take it away. And maybe we anesthetize ourselves with THC oil or different vaping products or alcohol or relationships, but that never takes the shame away. It just makes it worse. It's still there, hiding under our fig leaves. So then we run and hide, driven by fear, That's man's response to sin. How does God respond to sin? God comes with power and justice and a right to destroy the sinner. But God chooses to stay his own hand. He's patient because he doesn't only want justice. He does want justice, but God wants mercy as well. When confronted with God's justice and mercy, what do we do? We point our fingers horizontally. It's your fault. We point at God and say, this is your fault. And in doing so, at the end of the day, what do we, men and women, boys and girls, prove about ourselves? It's that there's nothing that we can do to take away the wrong desires that drove our disobedience, that brought the guilt and shame and fear and blame into our lives. There's nothing we can do. Man's way leads to death. In the coming weeks, we'll see this played out, right? The man and woman will face pain. 
God will curse the world to be set against them. They're always going to be fighting against the world. And then he'll put them outside the safe garden into the wilderness to wander with an enemy constantly pursuing them. And we hear God's word preached from Genesis 3. And there's this tension of knowing that I feel that way too. I'm, I feel guilt and shame and fear and then I blame and I feel like I've been put out of a safe place and I'm wandering in the wilderness. There's someone coming after me. But, but I also know something that Adam and Eve didn't. So thousands of years, I don't know how many thousands, some of you could probably do the math better than I could. Jesus is talking with his disciples. Jesus is the one that, that Jasper described in regards to what he came to do, to bring the light He's talking to his disciples, his closest followers. And he says, basically, let your hearts not be troubled. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Believe in God. Believe in me also. I'm going away now. I'm, I'm going to do something. But it's so that you can be with God. And you know the way to get there. And that this is John 14, by the way. And then Thomas, right? Thomas always needs the evidence. Thomas never wants to deal with the tension of living in faith. He wants to know exactly what everything is going to be. So Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And maybe we miss the humanness and emotion of this because we've kind of extricated John 14, 6 out of things and we put it on t-shirts and mugs and stuff. But maybe we miss the humanness of Jesus saying to Thomas, kind of like the same way a judge would talk to someone, but kind of the same way that a friend would talk to someone. And what Jesus knows to Thomas, and I can imagine looking at him and saying, Thomas, I'm, I'm the way. Thomas, I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's way is different than man's way. And he wants us to know that our way doesn't work so that we'll look for another way. And that way is the way of Jesus, who is God's way to change the heart that has the wrong desires to rebel against him that only produces guilt and shame and fear and finger pointing. Jesus is the way. But there's still this tension that we have to deal with. And I'm going to share from my heart here. And if it resonates with you, then maybe we're kindred spirits. If it doesn't, listen for the truth in these statements. There's still this tension of knowing the truth about Jesus, but then feeling the way that we feel. Because I do believe in Jesus. I do believe what God says. And I believe it's good. But I still sin. When I sin, I feel guilty and ashamed and afraid. And maybe even sometimes I point fingers at other people when I do that. And then it's just like double worse and triple worse and worse and worse and worse 
because then I'm guilty of being guilty. I'm like, I feel so guilty that I'm guilty. I know I shouldn't be guilty and I'm ashamed that I feel ashamed. I shouldn't feel that way. I know about Jesus. Why do I feel this way? And I'm afraid of God, but I know what God has said that I shouldn't be afraid and yet I still feel afraid. And there's no one to blame except myself. And my heart's like this tornado that feels like it's swirling around and getting ripped in two. My life is out of control and I just can't be at peace. What's wrong with me? And I want to counsel you from the pulpit to take heart. Dear brother and sister in Christ Jesus, because you're right to focus on what God said. You're right to focus on that what God says is good. But I want you to hear a correction. That God has said more than you're thinking right now. Yes, God's declaration about you, we would say justification. His declaration that you are righteous. That's true. It's certain. But God has said something else, and that's that his plan is not yet complete. You got to believe that what God says about himself is true and that he's still working in you. I want to challenge you to be content to trust God's way of doing things. We face the same choice as the man and the woman in the garden. That choice has not gone away. So sometimes there's still waters in our lives. Other times there's stormy seas. There's plenty, right? As evidenced by my waistline over the past year. And then there's want and there's not enough. And then we look and wickednesses run rampant, sometimes over our own hearts. We look at sin, and it's like, God, I am a nanometer from just giving up altogether. And we're feeling this weight of suffering in the wilderness and this constant pattern, like in the carpet of our lives, this path worn, but it's worn to the cross of Jesus. When we feel the, the, the sin and the guilt and the shame and the fear and we start blaming people, we wear this path back to the cross of Jesus Christ and it's like, why do I have to do this over and over and over again? And then there's this weight of this mystery that God has given us and that he, he has this plan to use hurt and suffering in our lives that he would accomplish something greater. But we still see the end of the road. A last breath. And then a return to the dust from which we came. But each step of the way, we're faced with this daily choice. And this is where I want to encourage us to focus as we hear from Genesis chapter 3 over the coming weeks. Will I trust that what God says is good? When the sea is calm, all is right. When I feel your favor flood my life Even in the good I'll follow you Even in the good I'll follow you When the boat is tossed upon the waves When I wonder if you keep me safe even in the storms, I'll follow you. 
Even in the storms I'll follow you I believe everything that you say you are I believe and I have seen your unchanging heart In the good things and in the hardest part I believe and I will follow you I believe and I will follow you When I see the wind prosper When I feel I have no voice to sing Even the ones I'll follow Shame is something we all feel, and as this song is saying, I believe and I will follow. This is the testimony of Scripture. It's all, what it's all about is faith. Will you believe that what God has said is actually true? Because the deceptions of how we feel and what we hear all the time are trying to trick us. I believe God created the universe and everything in it. Do you believe that God made you? Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that sin has separated you? And do you believe that he can forgive you and will forgive you if you but ask, regardless of the shame you feel? 
then if you are a believer, your shame should be a reminder, a reminder that the end is a home in paradise. That right now the shame is being done away with and will ultimately be cast away forever. A reminder of the hope that we're still waiting on. I hope you know him. If you need someone to talk to, we are going to have some people down here come talk to a pastor, someone we'd love to uh, help you pray with you, whatever it may be. A few things before we go, uh, a few updates. I I do want to remind us of communication, communication with ministry team and with leaders. we don't pass our book anymore, and there's this uh, struggle that the leaders have been having because it was a really good way of us hearing prayer requests and knowing uh, how you're doing, and it's just been hard to communicate. Some of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to reach out and call everyone in the church, the pastor, the elders, pastors, and the deacons are all trying to call every single one of you, see how you're doing, checking in on you. But I still want to encourage you. We have that electronic app. We also have the page on the uh, uh, website. Go there, fill that out. Give us your prayer request. We have teams of people that want to be praying. We want to be a church about fervent prayer. It's one of our pillars. Go and fill that out. Put your prayer requests in there. And it's another way you can communicate with us. Uh, we have counseling teams. Maybe you're in a position in life where you're like, man, I just I need someone to talk to. I need someone to hear what I'm going through. I need someone who can understand and maybe help me through biblically the, some decisions and some things going on in my life. It doesn't have to be a crisis. Communicate to us. Let us know how we can help. Uh, a few other things. Would you guys be praying uh, for our middle school and our high school? In two weeks, we're going to be going to Lake Ann to a winter retreat. And I'm here today as a result in my 30s as a pastor talking to you because of a camp experience when I was 15. That's where God called me and saved me and got a hold of me. So I know firsthand the, the power of just getting away, a concentrated time of uh, the Lord working. Pray for our students that are going to be leaving. Maybe there's a parent or a student here let you know we meet uh, every Sunday 4 to 6 over in the youth building. Come join us. We'd love to see any middle schooler 6th through 12th grade come and visit us. Church, hope you have a wonderful day, a wonderful week. Continue to fellowship and and, uh, conversate with one another. Stay connected and know this always, you are loved. God bless.